So, so we've got Christmas bearing down on us. I know everybody's busy and excited about it. And so why are you celebrating Christmas? I just want you to ask in your mind, why are you celebrating Christmas? What is so great about it as a celebration? I mean, for many of us, I think it's, it's bearing on, well, it's time to get together with family. For others, perhaps, it's, uh, it's the finishing of a good year and you're really excited about it. Others of you, it, it may not be good at all. You may be dreading Christmas. It's a time of loneliness and despair and frustration. And so why are you celebrating or even avoiding the celebrating of Christmas? You know, the church uh, has this season called Advent, which is the four Sundays prior to the 25th. And, and the intention that the church had was to just remind people of the value or the benefit of, of considering Christ coming in the flesh. It's also to look forward. But, but it's a notoriously difficult time to preach because it's familiar to you, or you think it's familiar. And, and so to try to kind of reignite a wonderment over the glory of Christ coming in the flesh is a real challenge because every year we do this. And uh, so there's a real task that I have before me. And so we're going to take four weeks, and uh, we're going to look at four different scriptures all speaking about why Christ came. The intention is to explain that, that Christ has come in the flesh. Now, the theological term for that is incarnation. Incarnation is just a Latin word meaning in flesh. So Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, we're going to be looking at Hebrews, and really Hebrews, the, the whole chapter 2 is about, um, well, really chapter 2, verse 10 on, is about Christ coming kind of the idea of Jesus being born and why he was born. We're going to look at 17 and 18 just as kind of a summary. But I don't want to study it from a simple theological standpoint, like, okay, now I understand the incarnation. No, this, where we're drawing the text from is from the book of Hebrews, which was written to us for the purpose of encouraging the church. So it was really a sermon, and the sermon was being preached to a people to hang on, to remain faith-filled, to be overjoyed at what you have in Christ. Don't go back. Don't turn back. You may be hitting all kinds of difficulty and trouble, but be faithful because Christ is great and worthy of all that you are. And so it's out of that context that we draw this passage. So he's not simply just explaining, hey, Jesus came in the flesh. He wants us to be encouraged by it, to be strengthened by it. And I want you to be as well. So two things we're going to see here, just two simple things, but... Simple, not simplistic. And that is that he came like us. So I want to explain the fact of the incarnation. He came like us. What does it mean that he took flesh? And, and then secondly, um, that he came for us. What are the reasons that he has come? Why should we celebrate Christmas? Why should Christmas really be one of the greatest days of your life and, and that you have the pleasure of thinking through and considering every year. So turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 17 and 18. I want you to think two things. He came like us, and he came for us. So let's look at this passage. He says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. It just two, I, I can't even explain all that is in these two verses, but let me just pull a couple things out. He came like us. So the, the writer is establishing Jesus has become like one of us, 
one of us. Now, he already did this in verse 14, actually, where he says that since the children have flesh and blood, he partook in all these things. So he's already established that Jesus has become like us using the term flesh and blood. But flesh and blood is more than just describing our natural state. To say that he took flesh and blood like we took flesh and blood is to say that he entered our world of weakness. The the expression, we are flesh and blood, was not a positive one in the sense of it it shows that we're bound, we're, we're subject to death, we have limitations and struggles. And what he's saying is that Jesus has taken that upon himself. So Jesus, in taking upon our nature, is subject to fatigue and and he needed to be fed, and he was, he was tired, and he was subject to death, so he took on our physical nature upon himself. But there's more, because when you look at 17, the writer repeats himself within three verses. Why? Because he wants you to understand it. This is showing you the significance of it. Look in 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every way, he had to be made like us. Now, I want to pull this apart just a little bit, in the sense of, I think most of you probably believe in the Incarnation. But if pushed, you would see Jesus as not really like us. I, I mean, he, you would say, well, he wasn't subject to all the struggles that I have in terms of physical ailments or mental immaturities or variations in moods. He wasn't really subject to all those things. And you kind of think, well, Jesus is God just wrapped with a thin veneer of flesh. But we don't see him maturing and going through the difficulties of adolescence into adulthood. and We don't see him like that. And I just want to remind you that that if you don't see him like that, you're you're kind of falling back into an old heresy called docetism, where Jesus only appears to be human. He only seems to be human. What he really is is God. I mean, look at all the things he said and all the things that he did. He's not really like us. He only appears to be like us. And that was a heresy condemned by the church years ago. The reality of it is that he is exactly like you. Oh, he's fully divine, without a doubt. He's fully divine. But he has taken these divine powers and prerogatives, and he has set them under the direction of the Father, for the Father to use as he will. But but he himself was fully human. What I mean by that is his mind was like ours, his body was like ours, his emotions were like ours. He matured, he, he, he grew from infancy to adolescence to adulthood, just like us, facing the same struggles that we have. I mean, don't think he was in the cradle fathoming the mysteries of God. Don't think he was in the cradle with full awareness of all things, of all people, of all time. He was a baby, like we have been babies. And then he grew up, he struggled. He fought through. I mean, Luke tells us this. He grew in the stature and wisdom of God. Even his will was like ours. You know, he says, not my will, but your will be done. So even he had a human will that had to be submitted to God. Jesus didn't just resemble us. He was like us in every single way, but without sin. Now, for the Christian here, I I want you to marvel with me. I mean, I want you to consider with me the massive humility of Jesus coming like us. This humility, you notice in 14 when it says he partook of flesh and blood, and you notice in 17 where it says he had to be made like his brothers, it implies a preexistence. It implies that he existed before. And we know that from the passage that Luke read at the beginning. 
in uh, Philippians chapter 2, 6, 7, and 8, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He became born in the likeness of men. And it says, having been found in the form of man, he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's this humility that I want you to marvel over. I mean, we have trouble sometimes lowering ourselves to people that are beneath us. And can you imagine this divine taking on flesh limits? I mean, the Greek authors could never understand. All the humans were trying to become like the gods. Why would the gods ever become like humans? But not just wonder at his humility. How about his grace for us? If you notice in your text in verse 16, it says it's not to the angels that he helps, but it's to the seed of Abraham. In other words, Jesus doesn't help the angels. Now, that word for help means to take hold of. It was used... Like when Peter came out to Jesus on the water and his faith began to fail and he began to sink and Jesus took hold of him. So Jesus grabbed him. And and what the reformational um, authors used to say is that Jesus didn't take hold of the angels. He didn't take their nature. He took our nature to become like us. He didn't help the angels. I want you to see grace given to us by him taking on our nature, not the angels. In fact, Matthew Henry writes these words and they sound... Um, they sound very stark. But listen to what he says. He did not lay hold of the angels, but he laid hold of the seed of Abraham. The angels fell, and he let them go and lie under the desert, defilement and dominion of their sin, without hope and without help. Christ never designed to be the savior of the fallen angels. As their tree fell, so it lies and must lie to eternity. Do you know what this means? This means that he has chosen to help us. The grace that he would take upon himself, our nature. It it ought to leave us in wonderment. In fact, Charles Spurgeon gives word to the incarnation, and it's it's beyond tracing out. And, And listen to what he says. He says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. As Jesus Christ is a child in his human nature, he is born, begotten of the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He is as truly born as certainly a child as any other man that ever lived upon the face of the earth. He is thus in his humanity a child, born. But as Jesus Christ, as God's Son, he is not born but given, begotten of the Father from before all worlds, begotten not made, being of the same substance with the Father. The doctrine of the eternal affiliation of Christ is to be received as an undoubted truth of our holy religion, but as to any explanation of it, no man should venture thereon. For it remaineth among the deep things of God, one of those solemn mysteries indeed into which the angels dare not look, nor do they desire to pry into, a mystery which we must not attempt to fathom, I would say fully. For it is utterly beyond the grasp of finite being, as well a night As well, a gnat seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God. A God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp him, he could not be infinite. If we could understand him, then he were not divine. So this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh as the God-man to help us, to humble himself, to serve us. Now, to the non-Christian here, I want you to understand that this incarnation 
has devastating implications for you. If God has sent this son, then all other religions are false. All other ways to God are false. That that, that if he has sent a son to be a king, then our response is nothing but to bend the knee in repentance of our sin and to worship him. I mean, to try to have meaning in Christmas about Christ is absolute meaninglessness. And this is what our culture is moving to. There is a a think tank in London called Theos. It's a London-based group, and they did this survey of uh, citizens of the UK, a a survey of 1,000 people, and they asked the question as to the relevancy of Christ to Christmas. And 46% of those polled said that Christ is irrelevant to their celebration of Christmas. Now, I don't know that the number would be significantly different in America, probably a little lower, but it'd still be higher than you and I could imagine. But what is, what is Christmas apart from this incarnation? It really is a, a meaningless holiday that people will try to spiritualize with some degree of goodwill to men and peace on earth and the like. But if it's not grounded in this incarnation of God's invasion in the world in Christ, then let me tell you, it would fail and it will falter, and it will ultimately have no meaning. So that's the fact of the incarnation. He came like us. I want you to marvel with me over that. But the reason, it begs us to ask the question, why? Why did he come like us? Well, it, it was so that he could come for us. I, for those of you taking notes, I want to give you three ideas, just three things on why he came for us. And, and, and we see them in, in 17 and 18. The first thing I want to remind you is that he came to be a representative for us. He came to mediate between this relationship of God and man. You see that right in 17 when he says that he had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Don't miss the moral necessity He had to be made like his brothers. There was no other solution between God and man. There was no other mediation between God and man. It had to be him. It had to be this, he took on flesh. He had to be made like us. And and we see that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Remember the high priest in the Old Testament? The high priest would be one that would mediate He would represent the people to God, and he would mediate God to the people. So he was a critical intermediary between God and man. That's what the high priest was. And so Jesus being the high priest, he is representing God to us and us to God. But notice the adjectives he used. He's merciful and he's faithful. In other words, Jesus, as the high priest, is merciful. He is extending God's mercy to us. Now, when I say mercy, I don't want you to think of just a general compassion. Like you drive by the road and you see someone in trouble and you just feel bad that they got stuck with that. But you keep on driving. So when I do that and I come home and I tell Carol how bad I felt, she could say, well, you're not merciful. You didn't do anything to help. I mean, mercy involves the attempt to alleviate whatever suffering is seen. Mercy involves this effort toward the one who is suffering. That's why all the people that passed the Good Samaritan, they weren't merciful at all. It, it was the, it, or the, yeah, the man that was hurt, the Good Samaritan was the merciful one because he stopped and helped. And that's what Jesus is doing, is Jesus has come in the flesh to show us the very mercy of God. 
I mean, that's why he, he fed the hungry and he healed the sick and he cleansed the demonized and he released the oppressed. That, that he was striving to exhibit and display God's mercy. Most of us don't see God as merciful. We may be terrified of him. We think about his wrath. We think about his anger, his omniscience. We think about him knowing all things and is far away. But Jesus has come to mediate the mercy of God so that when you see Christ, you would see God is merciful. God is gracious and he's kind. But not just a merciful high priest. He's a faithful high priest. That, that Jesus Christ has come to walk out perfect faithfulness before God on our behalf. You and I have never been fully faithful. But now we have one who has come, like us, but God, who has now been faithful to God. So the high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies once a year, but he'd have to take the blood of a perfect lamb. Why? Because he had sin. He needed a covering for his sin as well. But Jesus needs no sin. He brings himself in to the Holy of Holies. So Jesus is absolutely faithful. Now, for the Christian here, this is good news for you. That you can appeal to God now in Christ. That with Jesus as our mediator, we have experienced, we can come even bound in sin to God for mercy. Many of you shrink back at appealing to God because you know you haven't done what you should have done. You've failed. You've sinned. You've slipped into besetting sin. And you think, God could never take me back. But Jesus came in the flesh. This is why we celebrate Christmas, because God is merciful to us. I mean, people, what I want you to know is, even when you come to the table, the table's for sinners. That God is merciful. He's kind. He's forgiving. That when you appeal to him by faith in Christ, he, he receives you. He welcomes you. He invites you. I mean, this idea of God being so distant and far has been bridged by Christ. Not only that, but those of you who struggle with finding acceptance with God because you never do enough right. I mean, he is your faithfulness. He is your righteousness. That you can find acceptance with God, not because you had a a good week of devotions, not because you shared Jesus with three people this week. That you can be accepted by God because Christ has lived a faithful life that God has accepted and that when you are in Christ, you are accepted. This is bad news for the religious person. For the religious person who thinks, well, you know, I've got this, 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 this. I'm in good shape with God. It's bad news for them because it's only in the faithfulness of Christ that we can appeal to God. So if you're resting in the accomplishments that you have had, even religious and good accomplishments, this is bad news. This is not good news for you. Listen to what John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, said. He said, if you contemplate yourself, that is sure damnation. But since, hear what he said? Isn't that amazing? That's such a great line. If you contemplate yourself, in other words, if you're navel-gazing all the time, you're only thinking about yourself, that is damnation. But since Christ has been so imparted to you with all of his benefits, that all that is his is made yours that you are a member of him, indeed one with him. His righteousness overwhelms your sins. Boy, you can just see this crashing wave. It overwhelms your sins. His salvation wipes out your condemnation. With his worthiness, he intercedes that your unworthiness may not come before God's sight. 
I mean, what hope? What reason to celebrate that he is like? He came to be like us, to be a representative for us. People, you can appeal. It's like that Luke 18, that parable that Jesus taught about the Pharisee going right up to the temple and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other sinners, this one over here, this tax collector. I tithe. I, 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 I'm serving you. I'm, I'm doing everything you want me to do. And look at how proud I am, God, of all that I've done. And you got the tax collector in the back of the temple. He won't even look at God. He's beating his breast saying, God, have mercy on me. It's the same word. God, that's all they're doing. All we're doing is bringing our sin to him. But God's merciful. And Jesus is showing us that you come by faith with your sin to a merciful God and you'll be welcomed, you'll be received. So that's the first reason he came for us. But secondly, this is really important, he came to be our propitiator. He came to deliver us from our sin. Now look in your text with me because in verse 17 it says that he came as a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now you may have a translation that has expiation or you may have a translation that has atonement. And, and there's a debate over this word. Some struggle thinking that what it really means is this, that that um, Jesus has come to take our sins away so that we can be reconciled to God. So in other words, we understand that sin is a breach of faithfulness with God. It causes a rupture in our relationship with God. And so we need an intermediary to come and to, to breach that gap. And so Jesus comes to bring forgiveness to take our sins away so that we can be, re- recon- or, uh, we can be reconciled to God. And that is gloriously true. But there's more. Don't think the word speaks about simply atonement or even forgiveness. The word propitiation is actually a word that deals with the wrath of God. You sang it in two different songs. That that sin against God brings his wrath. Now, we don't talk about wrath. We talk about a God of love. But, But a God of wrath is used 585 times in the Old Testament. It's used 30 times in the New Testament that God is wrathful against the sin of men and women. Now, let me explain wrath. Wrath isn't a temper tantrum that God is just mad because he's not getting his way. Wrath is a settled, a controlled anger towards sin and wickedness and evil that emanates out of his holiness and righteousness. So wrath of God, his anger towards sin. And folks, every one of you has it. When you see what appears to be a great travesty of justice, or you see an, a perfectly innocent person, well, there's no perfectly innocent person, when you see an innocent person victimized by someone, everything in you just comes up, and you want to make it right. That's wrath. It's a snapshot of the divine wrath. When he says that Jesus has come to make propitiation, He is saying that Jesus isn't just coming to remove sin to bring forgiveness. Jesus endured God's wrath being vented upon him as you watched. He was in your stead. So God's perfect, righteous, and holy judgment of sin that you have committed was vented upon the Son, and he absorbed it all so that you will never absorb it. You will never face it. There will never be condemnation for you. Folks, if you just dial back in your mind and you roll back through all the sins, and if they were brought before perfectly, holy God, and they received 
They're just desserts. You should tremble that the son has borne this. And note that it was done publicly. In other words, that cross wasn't done in a corner. It was done publicly for everybody to see. They could see God's wrath being poured out on the son, but they could also see God's love demonstrated in the freedom of sinners. It's, it's a beautiful display of the mercy of God, the mercy and love commingling. So when you think, folks, if you here are just sin-challenged and you're struggling with walking in the forgiveness that you've had, this is a reason to celebrate Christmas that you've been forgiven of your sins through faith in this Son, in the one that has come like us in every way. He had to be like us to be a representative for our sins, but he had to be God to bear it, that God gave of himself to save us. I mean, think through those of you. I mean, as you go back through your sins, and, and you know, the dark one always wants to bring your past up and remind you he can't really forgive you. You know, all that you've done, and you've done that sin 8,000 times. But remember, when that thought comes in, go back to the perfect one who is like you and bore your sins. Bore your sins and bore the wrath associated with it. And this is why Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I mean, isn't this better than just painting Jesus as some pasty guy that came to display God's love? That Jesus is just some nice little example? you know, that he makes, he just shows us how to live. That is so weak. This is not a provisional salvation. This is a salvation that has been achieved because judgment has already been meted out on him. And so we don't want a pasty little Jesus that examples it. We want a Jesus who actually delivers, and he does. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. He has delivered good on salvation. So that God's justice is now satisfied in the punishment of the Son, but God's love is satisfied in the freeing of men and women from their sins, drawing them back to himself. I mean, if you know sin, if you know sin, you need to know Jesus Christ. And if you don't think you have sin, then this seems like such a waste of a human life. Okay, thirdly, in fact, let me give you a quote actually from... um, John Boys, he was a Puritan, and it kind of shows a picture of this. He says, the best way to reconcile two disagreeing families is to make some marriage between them. Even so, the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the world that he might hereby make our peace, reconciling man to God. By this happy match, the Son of God is become the Son of Man, even flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones. So there's a marriage, those of you who are in faith. For those of you who are not in faith, you will stand before God for these sins. If he has punished the son for the sins of the of the saints, then the sins of those who are not saints will likewise be punished. Okay, the third reason that he has come is found in verse 18. And and he's come to help us in temptation. That's the third reason. First one, he became like us so that he could represent us, that he could propitiate our sins and that he could also help us in times of temptation. Look at what he says. He himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Folks, don't make the mistake that, in fact, Jesus only suffered physical, that those physical tortures of crucifixion. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. In in particular, from a high aerial view, Jesus suffered when he was being tempted and being dissuaded from following the cross. You know the temptation in the desert. Right when the when the devil 
tried to come and say, hey, why don't you try to regain the kingdom another way, contrary to God? Or he was tempted by Peter when Peter said, no, 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 you won't have to go to the cross. And of course he earned the stinging rebuke of our Lord. Get behind me, Satan. And then thirdly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is tempted. You know, my will, his will, my will, not my will be done, your will be done, and it brought drops of blood. So he suffered greatly under the temptation to be dissuaded from going to the cross in obedience to the Father, walking out perfect faithfulness. But he also suffered from lust. He suffered from anger, or tempted to lust, tempted to anger, tempted to envy, just like us in every way. Now, don't think because he was sinless, he didn't suffer in those temptations. In fact, I would argue that he suffered more than any of us have ever suffered because he didn't sin. The only way to experience the full weight of suffering is to not give in to it. So if I'm tempted to anger, and I fight it, and I fight it, and it's really bugging me, and I want to give in to it, and then I finally give way, I haven't felt the full suffering of the temptation because I collapsed under it. Jesus never collapsed under it. So he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like. When you are tempted to sin and you don't give way and it's suffering, he knows what that's like. Like one New Testament scholar said, Jesus knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know it. What good would another who has failed be to us? It is precisely because we have been defeated that we need the assistance of him who is victor. So here's Jesus. He's suffered under this temptation. He's able to help those who are being tempted. That word for help is come to the aid of. You know, it's like a child crying out when she's in trouble. And does the mother wait to an opportune time to try to get help to the child? No, it drops everything and runs right to the child. That's the way Jesus is. We call out for help to the child. Or we, we call out help to Jesus while we're being tempted. And he is able to aid us in the temptation. He is able to strengthen us. Now, now for those of you who do struggle with temptation, caving in, collapsing underneath of it, for those of you who are fatigued, maybe right now you're even tempted to give up the faith. Your marriage is in such disarray. Your kids are problematic. You're own struggling with your own sins and lusts and pleasures. And, and you just want to give way. You want to give in. You want to throw in the towel. You want to just wave the hanky. I give up. Jesus stands ready to help. I mean, that's, that's the encouragement of why he came. He knows what you experience. He knows it intimately. He knows it fully. He has engaged it. Jesus did not escape temptation. He endured it by faith in the Father. And now he's appealing to you and saying, I am ready to enable you. So when you're tempted now, you're able to cry out to Christ, help me not to sin against the Father. Give me grace that I'll find the pleasure of God to be of greater measure than the pleasure of this sin that is parading itself in front of me. So Jesus came like us in every way. Please don't, don't fall into an ancient heresy thinking that he's just kind of like us. No, folks, he is like you in every way, but without sin, thankfully. And he came for us. He came for us 
to, to represent us to God. He represents us right now. When we come to the table, he will be our representative taking us to the Father. When you're in heaven for 10,000 years, he will be your representative. You will always be in Christ. You will never not need Christ. You won't get to heaven and say, thanks, Jesus, I'm going to go be with God now. You'll always be worshiping God because of Christ as your representative. He's come to represent us. He has come to propitiate your sin. Folks, those of you who are constantly dealing with those condemning voices of your past, you need to think on this propitiation. There is freedom and joy for you in this. And then for those of you who are going to be facing temptation to materialism or anger or whatever is going to be facing you this week, there is one who has suffered in every temptation but without sin, and he's able to strengthen and encourage you. So let me pray for us, and then we'll prepare our hearts for the table. Father, thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've given to us in such a gift of Christ. Father, in these, in these four weeks, Lord, would you move upon the hearts and the souls of each person here, reminding them, encouraging them, strengthening them to celebrate Christ in this Christmas season. That, Father, the gifts and the wrappings and the lights and the cheer are absolutely valueless apart from this. Father, may this be the ballast of our joy this Christmas season. Father, I pray for those right now that don't feel they can come before you because of their sin. I pray for those who are still being condemned over and over for a past that was dark, for those of for those here who are struggling with temptation, Father, would you bring Christ to bear so powerfully on their hearts that they would turn to him, find him sufficient in all things and in all ways because he's like them, but he's able to save them. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.